Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. Hello, my name is Dr. Michael Corrin, and I'm very, very delighted to be talking with my colleague and friend, Dr. Neil Sangvi, in another episode of Two Docs Talk, which is a serial that we're doing for our MedEvidence platform. And uh, Neil and I had a fabulous discussion in our first segment talking about what the heck atrial fibrillation is and, and ways of diagnosing it. And for this segment, we're going to jump into really how to start treating it. And um, uh, Dr. Neil Sangvi is the medical director of the rhythm services at Flagler Hospital here in Northeast Florida. Basically, um, when it comes to uh, coming up with policies and 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 gearing other people to towards um, the best ways of identifying and treating arrhythmias. Neil's Neil's the guy in our in our town. So, thanks for that service, Neil. And uh, let's jump into a discussion about the ways that we treat atrial fibrillation. Sounds great. Thank you for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. So, okay. So we we make the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Tell us what the next steps are and how we think about it as cardiologists in terms of what the appropriate level of intervention may be, depending on what we're finding in the clinical scenario. Yeah. So, I mean, first, you know, what we try to drive into are potential trigger points or contributors that allowed the patient to develop atrial fibrillation. You know, we talked about hypertension, we've talked about electrolyte uh, imbalances. And so we try to tackle these in individual formats. So first and foremost, basic lab work. Right? Let's make sure that you're not deficient on magnesium or potassium or that your thyroid is overactive or hyperactive because that could potentially lend towards atrial fibrillation. And correcting those simple deficiencies or overactivity through diet and or supplements um, or medical therapy if the thyroid happens to be hyperactive. So that would be probably the first, very first step. Then the more difficult journey begins because most of the time these patients are suffering from a multitude of problems, high blood pressure, obesity, sleep apnea, as we talked about before. And these are lifestyle changes that individually need to be tackled and are, are not easy to tackle, but often yield a lot of reward if we do tackle them. And that's involving things like losing the weight, right? Aerobic activity. What, what do we talk about? I think, you know, Mike, I think you've told me before you've told your patients, what, 30 minutes a day, five days a week at a minimum, right? Is, is what we're Absolutely. looking for. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, mantra. What <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, and you know, and we admit, right. I admit that this is easier said than done, but mm -hmm. the rewards probably outweigh any of the medicines that we can provide. And so weight loss, management of sleep apnea, managing and monitoring high blood pressure and trying to treat it, whether it be through combination of weight loss, diet alterations, right? We've talked about this DASH diet in the past, right? Mm -hmm. Dietary approach to stopping hypertension. It's, you know, as crazy as it is, what we put into our bodies impacts us. And so if we could change what we put in, that would help, right? So in your scope, in your scope of clinical experience, is there a big percentage that can come in get diagnosed with a brief episode of atrial fibrillation and then just change their lifestyle, be it alcohol reduction or treating their sleep apnea or other things, and then be fine? You know, amazingly, the the ones who are successful, the answer is yes. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a number of trials that have been done both in the US and Europe actually looking at this very question and saying, if we have a very rigorous approach to diet and exercise, can we have a meaningful impact, whether it's complete abolish, getting rid of AFib altogether, 
or to the point where it's not a bother, right? And and they've shown clearly that that is a powerful tool. The biggest challenge is us being successful at it, right? Sure. The the amount of lifestyle change required is is a dedication, but the rewards are tremendous. And so any therapy I offer has to be on based on that. So so you and let's get a little specific. Let's, let's say somebody comes in, you find out that they overindulge in alcohol. You know, they're um, they're not a complete drunk, but um, it's not unusual for them to to drink two six packs of beer on the weekends, and they notice they're getting some palpitations and other things uh, the next day or maybe later in the day, and and they behave themselves and they they stick to a very very strict regimen of one glass of red wine with dinner every day, and that's it. So, mm-hmm. reasonable success rate for that person. Yeah, if, if, you know, again, it's very difficult. Unfortunately, I don't have a test that exists to say that this is your trigger. So I can only advise them to say these are the potential contributors. And if it turns out that in this individual that there's a sensitivity to alcohol, which often there is, I've seen tremendous success in just mm-hmm. simply changing alcohol intake. I'll take another example just to piggyback off that. In the Starbucks world that we live in, right, we live in these worlds where a, a coffee serving, which used to be this, and I saw you pick up your mug right there. Yeah, it's water, turned it's into water. This. <laughs> it's it, turned I, into this, I, right? I, unlike, and, unlike Johnny Carson, there's nothing alcoholic in there. There, you know, <laughs> there are no two carbon molecules, I, I swear to it. Okay, very good. So, so you know, oftentimes I'll ask a patient, I was like, how much coffee do you drink? And they'll say a cup. I was like, tell me how big that cup is. And it turns out it's this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and so that's not a single serving of caffeine, right? And so, right. excessive caffeine can be a trigger as well. There so, okay, changing perfect. lifestyle there as well. Okay. All right. So, so kind of run us down the spectrum of different levels of intensity in terms of the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Yeah. So we talked of lifestyle. That's that's foundational. You know, mm-hmm. it's the hardest goal, but it's the foundation of anything that we build on. So the patients who are doing a good job are trying to do the best, but yet we're still having episodes of atrial fibrillation. Then we'll stay, we'll move towards things that are uh, pharmacologic. So there's a classification of medicines known as beta blockers, and there's another class called calcium channel blockers. They come under common names, metoprolol, diltiazem, verapamil. And these are meds that are meant to try to have an impact on the electrical properties of the heart in a mild way. And sometimes we'll be successful in suppressing these triggers that are triggering atrial fibrillation. So to backtrack just for a moment, AFib has to be triggered in many instances. And, and that trigger is a series of misfires in the heart that initiate it. So we're trying to suppress the triggers. And it's through lifestyle changes that we just talked about or some of these meds that try to suppress the triggers. So that would be the next strategy. Mm-hmm. Now, the success rate in these meds varies from patient to patient. Okay, But they're not the most powerful meds. And oftentimes, they may not be successful in suppressing the trigger, but what they can do is help make the symptoms less evident to the patient. So many times patients here, they feel the irregularity, they feel the racing, and the meds will help calm that. So it's not so debilitating. And so yeah. the metoprolols and the dotizums can help in that regard. From Let me explore uh, that with you a little bit more. And I, I think that this speaks to physicians who may be really focused on underlying triggers versus physicians that are just kind of checking boxes when they make their decisions about what meds to use. So, you know, in my experience, and obviously as a, as a general cardiologist, I treat atrial fibrillation. One of the, the, the tricky parts is to understand the triggers and then to pick the therapies that are most likely to, to offset that effect. So for example, if somebody may be, um, you know, 
a driving executive and we think that adrenaline surges are causing the atrial ablation, maybe a beta blocker is a good choice. If you have um, perhaps an African-American female that has high blood pressure, maybe a calcium channel blocker would be better because that, that will reduce blood pressure to a greater degree in an African-American patient compared to a beta blocker, and that might be a good choice. So uh, targeting your therapy to the specific circumstance of the patient is such an important part of what we do as cardiologists. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think, I think you know, we are not all built the same, and uh, each of us, we do require some tailored therapy. And there is, there's definitely tailoring that goes along with ethnic background, uh, personal circumstance, physical circumstance, uh, situational, right? So, so, you know, the history becomes such a big part of this. When do you have your AFib episodes? You know, some will say it occurs while I sleep. Well, those are triggered by a vagal response, a nerve that's in the body. And so you're now trying to tra uh, treat vagally mediated atrial fibrillation, and there's certain therapies for that. There's the executive, as you described, which are adrenaline or, or exercise-induced AFib. And so those are adrenaline induced. And so I agree, there are tailored therapies for sure. And I try to dissect the patient a little bit to understand which may be a specific trigger to decide which medicine may be effective. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump from that class to the more stronger antiarrhythmics. Yeah, so, so the antiarrhythmics is that, is that second tier of therapy that I uh, will turn to when our basic therapies are ineffective. Now, these are drugs that are designed to specifically manipulate the electrical properties of the heart, okay? And they, they come, they, they, the, the channels that actually help the heart beat are what they're manipulating. And they come into a different set of categories, and we choose uh, agents based on specific patient uh, criteria. So, for example, certain antiarrhythmic drugs can be used safely uh, in all patients, some patients who have severe coronary disease, blockages in their heart arteries, weakness of the heart muscle, we can't turn to certain meds because they've been shown to be more harmful than good. But their effectiveness as a whole in aggregate tends to be about 50%, okay? So 50% of patients that get put on these meds will see medical benefit, right, and have suppression of their atrial fibrillation because the direct therapy is now suppressing the misfires that are allowing the safe 50 to trigger. Um, that's not 50% lifelong. It's... 50% for, you know, certain durations. Unfortunately, there are patients who've been put on these meds, works for a while, and then the body adapts. And so all of a sudden, they're breaking through the medication. Uh, there's others where we use a certain med, but because as time goes on, the patient may develop another ailment, which then makes that med prohibitive. So we have to come off and go to something else. Unfortunately, the best odds are 50-50, you know, right. and, and th those aren't great, right? I mean, those aren't great, but that's the best that we have in medical therapy. I'll turn to an agent, dronetarone, also known as Motac. It's the last agent that came onto the market for atrial fibrillation. There was hope in the medical community that it was going to be this panacea. It was going to be this powerful medicine that was going to help us manage atrial fibrillation, be very effective uh, without any toxicities. Um, and unfortunately, it ended up becoming one of the weakest ones that's out there on the market. It's power it works for patients in the right patient, but it doesn't work for everybody. And right. so we just haven't made headway in this antiarrhythmic drug therapy. But drugs do make uh, effect in patients. Uh, we try them in certain patients, uh, but they do come with some side effects like any yep. medicine would. And so we balance them. 
Yeah. Multex an interesting product, as you bring up, Drenetarone. We did a lot of research. I, I personally did a lot of research on that over the years. And the thought process, it was a safer antiarrhythmic because it really worked just in the atria rather than the ventricle. But mm-hmm. as you point out, we get the data. It turns out maybe not to be the, the best antiarrhythmic agent and probably something that we don't use nearly as much as we thought we might use. So yeah. moving, moving from drugs to devices, you, I know you do a lot of that work. So it sounds like that's become more a common approach for a lot of patients with atrial fibrillation. Yeah. So anybody who looks up AFib, they're going to see the term ablation come across. Um, and so it's a, it's a minimally invasive technique where we take catheters through veins in the legs to attempt to um, eliminate misfiring tissue. So conceptually, anatomically, you and I have talked about this, atrial fibrillation comes from the upper chamber, the atrium of the heart. And what we've learned through years of research is that the source of the misfire, the, the trigger, oftentimes comes from structures known as pulmonary veins. And these are vessels that drain blood from the lungs as they empty the oxygenated blood from the lungs back into the heart. Embryologically, these vessels actually form from the heart itself. And so as they stretch out from the heart, they pull along some conducting tissue. But the problem is, is that cuff of conducting tissue ends up being not as well regulated as the rest of the heart is. And as a result, misfires will trigger. So what catheter ablation is, is a technique, and we can do it with either heating the tissue or supercooling the tissue, but effectively we're destroying that cuff of tissue. And by doing that, we're not impacting the overall function of the heart in any way. So patients really worry, am I kind of hurting regular heart muscle? And the answer is no. All we're doing is taking away that cuff, and by doing so, we suppress, in many patients, the misfire. The success rate, 70 to 75% in patients who otherwise have a healthy heart in preventing atrial fibrillation. So much more powerful than the medications that are exist out there, but not 100%. I wish it was, but it's not there. So interesting and, and, and so impressive. And the technology just gets better and better. The, as I understand the data, the su- success rates have improved fairly dramatically over the last uh, decade or two. Absolutely. You know, the key here was the heart as the rest of the body wants to heal itself. And I just mentioned that I'm trying to actually cause scar. I'm trying to destroy tissue. And so the tools we had weren't as effective. So we would get some inflammation and what we thought was destruction, but over time it would reheal and then the problem comes back again. And the way I like to explain it to patients is I'm trying to build a wall. And if a door develops in the wall because something heals, well, guess what? That's a path for misfires to come through. Got the it. tools we have now are much more powerful than before. The success rates are going up. I said 70, 75%. In the right patient, it could be even upwards of 85%. Gotcha. And, and, the, and the procedure is not very um, taxing. And so that's why it's become much more favorable for patients to turn to an ablation uh, versus other therapies uh, that exist that we talked about. So let's go from very high tech, which is really, really cool, to low tech. How about, how about supplements? A lot of people think that there are different supplements that can work for atrial fibrillation. Yeah, that's much more challenging, right? Uh, I think the electrolyte supplements, magnesium, uh, potassium, uh, there's been some role in helpful and help in uh, suppressing atrial fibrillation in that regard. Um, there aren't any other major supplements that I've come across. I mean, fish oil has been mentioned as a possible tool, um, you know, variable success. To me, where the supplements come into play is that there isn't much harm in going on them, you know, assuming you don't have any major kidney issues or, or liver issues. And so it's, it's, it's a complement to that lifestyle change that we were earlier addressing. You know, yeah. the challenge with AFib, as you and I know, it's, it's not one thing often. 
that's the trigger. It's a multitude of things that so come in constellation. So, so maybe for a limited population, there can be some role, but that's right. But maybe not uh, something you should put too much hope in. All that's right, true. so let's let's get to a clinical case real quick. And um, this is a this is a hypothetical. It's a completely hypothetical. But uh, I played soccer for a number of years, and, and periodically people would come up to me knowing that I was a cardiologist and a soccer player, mostly a defenseman. Um, but we had this one occasion where uh, somebody missed a, a PK, a penalty kick, mm-hmm. and um, they were, I think, coming up with an excuse that they were having some palpitations that seemed to have distracted them from their goal of scoring a goal and winning winning the game for our team. But nonetheless, um, I, I, I took the person, the person as a word and yeah. noticed that he did have an irregular heartbeat. And Ooh. that led to uh, my evaluation that showed that this person, in fact, had paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So with this person in mind who say, let's say he's in his 50s, hypothetically, mm-hmm. um, I'm very curious in our next segment to see how you would manage that person and hopefully get that person back to the soccer field and actually scoring goals when they were asked to take a PK. Sounds like a good plan. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence Podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.info or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.